welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the University of Manchester. Refugees are often expected to display a number of so-called virtues. They're asked to wait in refugee camps or on asylum decisions, to make ends meet on small allowances while banned from working, to accept whatever charity is being given and so forth. Perhaps above all, they are expected to be grateful. But should they be? Or should gratitude be expected at all? In 2017, Dina Nayeri, an American-Iranian author, wrote an article for The Guardian with the title The Ungrateful Refugee, We Have No Debt to Repay. Last year, she published the book The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You, which tells her own and several other refugee stories while exploring themes of the refugee life. She joined me to discuss the book and I started by asking her to briefly introduce it. I guess the whole question of, you know, the, a refugee or a displaced person's place in the world has been, you know, my governing theme of my life for my entire life or for most of it, because I became a refugee at eight years old. Um, and my family, as long as I remember, you know, we've, that has been one of the words for us, you know, refugees or former refugees. And so it's um, something that has always been kind of in the back coloring my work, um, coloring my fiction. I've been a fiction writer for many, many years for, um, and I, uh, kind of left it in the back and, and wrote, let it kind of seep into my writing in, um, a more indirect way. Um, but then in 2015, it felt like everything changed. You know, I, I had worked so hard to become American. I had been, you know, I was very, I guess you might say assimilated, you know, someone who um, in my high school years and young, in my early twenties, I, I was so cognizant that I didn't want it. Like, I didn't want to feel like an outsider. I didn't want to come across as like too Iranian, which is a very strange thing, but you know, it was part of that insecurity of having been an immigrant. And so I, um, had worked hard to get, you know, to have an American accent, to dress American, to have, you know, all the cultural references, to have an American education. I got myself a really, you know, crazy good American education. And I um, felt, I guess, for the most part, like I fit in and welcome, you know, in a, in a superficial way. And then in 2015, suddenly, you know, America changed and, and landscape of Europe seemed to change. I mean, there was all this populism and all of this, you know, kind of xenophobia and all of this thinking that we don't want outsiders here, we only want the native born. And I thought, well, where do I fit into this? Because I, you know, I'm someone who does fit in with Americans. And at the same time, I'm not native born. And I was a refugee. And, and I guess what people are saying now is that they want to turn their back to the next generation of me, you know. And then at the same time, I was becoming a mother. So um, my, I, my daughter was born in December 2015. And she was born into this world that was kind of like rejecting movement and 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 people are very much about hoarding the things they were born with and all of their entitlements and and we were still I guess my partner and I were once again you know becoming nomadic we were leaving the U.S. we moved to England then suddenly Brexit happened I I, I didn't feel the same welcome for her I suppose that I had felt like I came into over the years as an American 
And so I decided to step out from under, behind the veil of fiction and to write something about my experience in a nonfiction and to also write it essayistically to say, this is what I believe is wrong with the way you think about migration and displacement and immigrants. And I decided to use not just my own stories, but other people's stories, because I was curious about how things had changed in the decades since I was a refugee. I wanted to see how much it stayed the same. I wanted to kind of relate that old experience with a new one and to see the next generation of children coming through and so I went to refugee camps and I talked to them and they were so generous with their stories these um, people who were on their way and um, and you know that's how I wrote the book so the book is about the cycles I guess it's about the the, the entire arc of the immigrant and the displacement experience it starts with escape and what you know, it's, it's, I think in America, the, the subtitle is what immigrants never tell you. And it's because every piece of this arc, you know, from escape to the waiting of the camp to the, you know, to asylum and, and assimilation and this kind of need to, for return, all of that long arc of many decades contains in it so much that people just don't say to the native born because they have shame and they have a feeling of like, you know, wanting to keep that to themselves and it's a private trauma. And then at the same time, weirdly enough, it's also universal because, you know, everyone has had to wait and everyone has had to tell their story and everyone has had to, I guess, assimilate to another person at some point in their lives. And I wanted the native born to see, you know, the, the, the similarities and how refugees are experiencing something extreme that is, you know, part of the human experience so that perhaps they could understand these things and, and have empathy and, and not inadvertently harm, you know. Thank you. And I have to say the way that you retell other people's stories in the book is it's fantastic. The it's you feel you feel like you're there almost. Um, I've never actually read anyone retelling um, stories in that way. Um, but uh, so so when I was reading the book, there were a few sort of central concepts running through it to describe, I guess, the refugee experience in a way, but perhaps more of, like you say as well, a universal experience. Um, mm -hmm. And the first one, like you just mentioned, um, is waiting, um, mm -hmm. which you talk about uh, several and uh, several times. So um, how would you say that waiting impacts on a person's lives and uh, what could be done to minimize waiting? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, it's um, uh, I mean, there's always, I suppose, kind of inadvertent, like, you know, waiting in life, these like liminal spaces, moments where we don't know what's happening. But I think it becomes insidious when when other people have the power to make you wait, and it becomes something systematic and an exerted kind of power. And we all have the power to make other people wait. And we all use it, you know, in, 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 in ways that if you kind of think back through all of your experiences, you can see that it's, it's, it's meant to display and perform that power. So for example, um, imagine if someone is in love with you, or if you have some like kind of a, 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 um, an imbalance in a, a romantic relationship, you exert that power by making them wait. If you're going to a job interview, the person makes you wait, doctors make you wait, you know, we exert power over each other by making each other wait. Now, but with refugees, I mean, I think this is such an extreme because they arrive, you know, in these camps and they don't know what their life will be. They don't know what their future language will be. They don't know what their country will be, what kind of uh, future their, their children will have, or even if they will ever get 
get out of this purgatory. It could take months, it could take years, but it's entirely in someone else's hands. They're entirely in someone else's power and any kind of cultural capital they have built through their profession, through their skills, it's gone for the moment. You know, they're just in, if it's very much like, you know, the uh, um, kind of the, uh, purgatory sort of myth you know it's, it's it's very much like that you're stripped of everything and you just wait and and then you're you ha- you're in the hands of this unseen power that can make you wait for a really long time and and um you know I was talking to a person this is in the book but I was talking to a refugee support person in Amsterdam who said that you know if if I if you're waiting for, for me and I tell you I'll be back in five hours you'll go off and do something else but if I tell you I'll be back in five minutes you'll wait. And then if I come back and say, no, five more minutes, five more minutes and five more minutes, I can make you waste those five hours instead of going off and do something else. And I can drive you absolutely mad. And that's what happens. You know, they just don't know when this will end. I talked to a refugee who, who, um, who said, you know, he said the most wonderful poetic thing. He said, uh, you know, waiting in a, a camp or in detention is worse than prison because in prison you have a sentence. In prison you count your days down. In um, camp you count your days up. So that that is the kind of destructive and um, paralyzing power that you know people have over each other when they can make that person just wait idly without any purpose, without any identity, just kind of waiting for the the say-so to continue life. Mm. And what's quite horrifying in a way is that from, you know, a lot of the times I think that waiting is kind of seen as a virtue of refugees. You know, you talk, you know, like queue jumpers is a bad thing and you shouldn't protest or make your voice heard. It seems to me like um, non-refugees. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite, it's quite um, striking how, how, different perspectives are yeah you know it's 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 i think people who say that this this shows such massive self-unawareness i mean so you're you're telling me so you said tell q jumpers what does that even mean what q you know um but also you know you tell people don't you should just wait and be patient would you you know, if I, I look at people during this pandemic, when they're told to just stay inside for a few months, they can still continue their work. They, can, they still have means of educating their children for the most part. But just because you're to, you don't know when you can you know, go about your regular routine, there are so many of the very same people who want immigrants kept out who say, you know, well, this is absolutely tyrannical. I, I am entitled you know, to continue my life exactly as before. And, and when will I? And they don't have any of the patients. They, patients they tell people who've been through torture and traumas to have um, so it's it's very very much based on this underlying notion that well I deserve more than you do because I was born into this uh, you know kind of entitlements in this in, in, in a western world in a free world and somehow I'm I'm owed this freedom and this knowledge of what will happen next in this level of control and you're not you should just be patient you know and put in the same situation they would not behave the same way I mean watch your children not have school for years after year after year watch your children become you know go from being spirited and curious and and full of fire to slowly having that fire die because someone won't tell you when it will be over I would just like I would ask people to really put that question to themselves would they just sit around and wait Mm -hmm. yeah 
So the, the second concept um, running through the book that I thought was um, dignity um, mm. and um, uh, how do you, and I guess it's related to, uh, to this uh, idea of waiting, but how, how do you think dignity then is affected by fleeing and seeking asylum um, and, uh, and, and refugee policies? Well, again, I say, you know, I, 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 I ask you to put yourself in that position. Like, what do we base our, our dignity on? Like, what is what are the ways that we perform, you know, like our identity? We have our professions. We have our talents. We have our homes. We have private space from each other. We have all of these things that allow us to be, you know, our our most dignified selves and nobody is actually watching out for these things when people become displaced because the first order needs come first of course you know people need food people need shelter so even the helpers people who really do believe in the humanity and and you know the the suffering of these people and they want to help even those people their first priority is okay let's get everyone fed let's get everyone shelter and that's great but i think that we should just open our eyes to the fact that these people you know, in their experience, the biggest thing they've lost is this sense of purpose and dignity, this sense of identity and pride. And a lot of them come from cultures like my own that really uh, value personal pride and your place in the world. And, and, and so, you know, I think in the book, I talk about this, this wonderful organization, Refugee Support, who, where the founders actually based their charity on this idea. I mean, they were both these two men were both in, volunteers in Calais and they saw that the, the um, charities would throw food and clothing out of the back of trucks at people and they would tell them to get out of the way and they would not listen to them when they say this was the wrong size or they had an allergy. And it was just, they, nobody was thinking about their dignity and they, nobody was thinking who this person was before. You know, was this person a doctor, an engineer? Was this person a brilliant craftsman? And that shouldn't even matter. You know, they're humans. So, um, you know, people walk away with a lot of memories of shame and being, you know, kind of just crushed, you know, in, in, in this kind of, of situation. And um, refugee support, what they decided to do is they would take donations of food and clothing, and then they would put them in makeshift stores, beautifully decorated stores in different refugee camps, and they would give people points. They would say, you know, every adult gets 100 points and every, uh, you know, pregnant woman get 150, children get 50, you know, teenagers get 75, that kind of thing. And then you can go and pool your family's, you know, points and you can shop and every item has its, you know, points price. And it, you make your own choices and nobody and you're treated exactly as you would be in the corner store in your home. And everybody knows, you know, how a store works. So I think um, that was one of the refugee support organizations that really understood, you know, about how the process of giving can be humiliating and, and um, dehumanizing to people. Yeah, I, was, um, I actually um, looked that charity up after I'd read the book because I thought mm -hmm. that just sounded so amazing, but I was quite saddened to see that they um, were unable to continue because, yeah. um, because the Greek government basically made it impossible for them. Yes. Yeah. It was, I saw a lot of the things that they did, um, you know, but they, you know, they've grown into other charities. They, they've kind of, they, after a while, they started doing, um, you know, kind of vocational training and, and helping people, you know, sell their handicrafts, especially women from the Middle East who had a lot of talents with their hands. And, um, and then, so, so the people who worked at refugee support are continuing, they're continuing in this kind of work. And, and you know, there's often this kind of, um, you know, one project leading it, 
into another in support work. But, you know, through refugee support, I got put in touch with another wonderful charity called um, Second Tree. And they, I think they started off as volunteers with refugee support as well. And they did an offshoot where they, they this, this charity is so wonderful. They give games and education you know, at the camp. And so they do it at some of the same camps because people, when they were working the stores of refugee support, they saw that one of the biggest things that was missing was, you know, just regular classes and education for the children. And some children were there for a year or two and they had nothing to do. They became idle. So, you know, that's what Second Tree does. There's just so many different needs, all of them, you know, in different categories. There's the first order needs and then there's ones that have to do with your dignity, your identity, your future. And I think a lot of these charities that that are run by people who understand, you know, that it's so, so vital to help these people retain who they are. Um, they're, they're not going to stop, you know, these people have dedicated their lives to this. It's really, truly wonderful, you know, and, and one uh, project begets another. And so um, I, I have hope that this work is continuing and who knows what will happen with refugee support. Well, perhaps we can put the names of these charities in the yeah. episode uh, description if people would like to support them. That would be amazing. Um, so the third um, concept I thought of was uh, being believed um, and uh, mainly focused on the asylum process, but also just being believed by other people in general. Yeah. Uh, so obviously it's important to be believed to, to gain asylum, but what else does it mean for a person to be, to be believed? It's funny you should ask that because um, that's the name of my next book. My, I'm now writing a book called Who Gets Believed? Oh. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, it's not just, it's not at all, it's not just about refugees. It's about all kinds of people and, and all kinds of vulnerable people and, and kind of the codes that we create in order to decide who is credible and who is not. And so whose stories fall through the cracks and, and how certain kinds of stories are just fundamentally not believed, refugee stories being one of them, and how culture affects stories. And then, and then who do we really, uh, you know, kind of who's stories do we really kind of pin up above everyone else's we believe just blindly without any reason um so that's kind of, and, and so I think for me as as I've studied this more and more and as I've read more people's stories and interviewed more people and and, and you know read literature and philosophies around belief um I'm, I'm starting to understand that you know the, the we we kind of create these kind of heuristics for truth which have to do with how a person performs their story and how a person um you know kind of signals to us that they are truth tellers or good enough and, and all of this are just codes that we've created that have nothing to, that are learned you know that have nothing to do with the actual truth of the story and that sometimes people who've suffered the worst traumas are the least able to truly articulate the story in the way that we need them to i mean i worked with a charity called freedom from torture and they gave me some really amazing stories and i talked to some of the people that seek help there and these are refugees who are escaping after having been tortured and their stories are the most you know impossible to convey in a way that's satisfying to not just asylum officers, but to other people, because the trauma mangles the stories. You know, the way we retain our memories in, in particular doesn't help because um, there was a doctor who was explaining to me, a doctor at refugee, uh, I'm sorry, at Freedom From Torture, who was explaining that when we create a memory, 
we uh, create, create it with two parts of our brain. You know, there's the part of the brain that, that stores contextual information. And then there's a the part of the brain that stores um, sensory information. And when we're experiencing a trauma, the sensory part becomes hyper alert and really takes in every detail. So this is why trauma survivors often remember, you know, the smell, everything slows down in slow motion. They remember every, you know, color and every smell and every touch and every sound. And when they tell you back that story, those are the things they remember. But the part of the brain that takes in contextual info, the day of the week, the address, the, you know, how long things took, that part goes into kind of a black and white mode. It loses all nuance, right? And so when asked to recount a story that was recorded in trauma, these survivors, they can't answer these questions that say the, the gatekeepers want, the asylum officers want, or that we want. When did it happen? How many years ago? And then how long after that did you do this? And then what did the person say next? That stuff has been lost right? What remains is the sensory detail. And so to the Western listener, who's used to a particular kind of storytelling with a perfect arc and a cause and effect and dates and times is they don't believe, you know, they're, they're, they're they, it, to them, it sounds made up. And I think that's just one, one way that that happens. There are so many different ways that vulnerable people tell stories in ways that kind of violate our codes of truth telling. Yeah, that's very uh, <clears throat> that's very interesting, and there's a bit of bit of research that I know of going on about um, uh, these injustices asylum seekers are subject to um, when their memories um, uh, are interpreted in these ways. Yeah. Um, so uh, the final concept, of course, then is gratitude. Um, so. What does gratitude mean to you and why did you name your book The Ungrateful Refugee? <laughs> well, um, the, book, the book came out of um, an essay I wrote in 2017 that went viral. And so in, in the essay was so widely read that I, I just I wanted to signal the book as a continuation of that kind of thinking. All of the things that people you know, who have been displaced don't want to share with the native born or don't, don't feel comfortable sharing. And one of them was that, I mean, that was what the essay was about. It was about this expectation of gratitude. And, and you know, people often ask me why, you know, the, the ones who kind of read the book most literally and, and it just, or read the title, I'm sorry, most literally, well, the, why are you ungrateful? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not ungrateful. What are you talking about? Um, but the, the, the thing I always say is that I have no problem with gratitude, you know, and I think gratitude is absolutely essential to survival and to mental health. But, you know, what I have a problem with is the expectation that my gratitude be postured for you. Like, why should there be an expectation of gratitude theater that I should, you know, take that gratitude and direct it to you or posture it toward to for, for you? Because that gratitude should be directed at, you know, the higher order things. I mean, most people are grateful to God, you know, or, or grateful to a society or grateful to even to some general community like the Western world and all of that. I think that's all wonderful. And I think it's even wonderful to, to be grateful to one person, but you should get to decide who that person is. It's like, it's like love or respect. You can't redirect someone else's love or respect or force them to channel it toward you, right? And I think people don't explicitly do that, but I think so often they say things or ask questions that signal that, you know what? Um, if you were grateful, you would behave a certain way toward me. 
So aren't you happy to be here? Aren't you glad that, you know, America took you in? And often those kind of things that people say are right after a person has expressed either a need or like a, a critique of their society as a thing that they perfectly well have a right to do, you know? They have a right to express their needs, to participate in society, to participate in politics, to say this is not really a good way for this to be, or this is a flaw. This is something I'd like to help fix. But you're not allowed to you know, to the native born, well, that's ungrateful. Why would you say that? Only we have a right, you know? Mm. And that's the implication. And when, when you say, well, aren't you, isn't this so much better for you? Aren't you grateful? The expectation is that a, a grateful person would channel that grat gratitude to the native born by keeping silent, by being a second-class citizen, by not seeking leadership, by not asking for too much because they've already been so, so very lucky. Well, you know what though? The fact is that the accident of birth is the first giant piece of luck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we should all be the same amount of grateful and the same amount of involved, you know, uh, if someone is born in a free country or if someone arrives in a free country, both of those things are the same amount of dumb luck, frankly, because um, and, and in fact, the one who arrives here has had more grit and has had more, uh, you know, kind of inner power than the person who was simply born you know lucky so i think we should just re you know um reshuffle that thinking a little bit you know reframe uh there is no deserving in birth you know there that doesn't come into play yeah so gratitude then is is used um as a way of silencing really um which exactly um, yeah. yeah gratitude belongs to the person who's feeling it and it belongs for their so it's for their health, for their mental health, for their happiness, for their joy, and for their own personal private relationships. I wonder on that note, just to, um, uh, to finish, um, if you want to say something about this anecdote um, quite early in the book, which uh, relates to this idea of gratitude, I guess of gratitude is like the silence. And um, so you were in school in England and someone slammed a door on your hand. I hope I remember this yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, um, and basically you were told to be grateful that your hand was okay. But yeah. then even as a child, you thought, well, gratitude doesn't seem to be the appropriate reaction here, but anger seems to be. Um, yeah. So do you think there's something to that reaction that you had as a child that, that you know, <clears throat> sometimes we, that it's not that the gratitude is perhaps inappropriate sometimes and other kinds of reactions would be more, um, would be more yeah. appropriate. Well, um, yeah, so, so let's be clear, my hand was not okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the kid did it on purpose. So, and this is a group of children who had actually been punching me in the stomach every morning. I didn't speak any English. I, I was put in a, an English school as soon as we arrived in England when I was six. I spoke not a word of English. I was dropped into a public school with a lot of like mean English boys, the kind that I'm sure you know, um, and who, you know, pummeled me every morning before school. And, and one day, um, you know, they, my finger was kind of like in the hinge of the door and one of them slammed the door shut and the, t the kind of like um, all the way through two thirds of my nail and the top of my finger was sliced off. I had to pick it off and up off the ground and take it to the hospital to be sewn back on. They told me that nail would never grow back. Um, it, it did but it never really grows long <laughs> anyway but I, I thankfully I can still kind of see 
where the finger has is a little bit, you know. But anyway, point is, it's not about how extreme it was, which it was, but and or how very traumatic. But it's it's just and and the gratitude part, like the idea that they would tell me to be grateful for the rest of my hand, you know, when no one had a right to touch my body or harm my body, you know? And I didn't think of it, I guess, in this articulate way, but what I felt as a six-year-old is that it was unfair, you know? This is completely unfair that Jesus would want me, you know, because these were a Christian community and this was Christian language. This was kind of couched in very religious kind of, of language. It wasn't about expressing gratitude to the boys or anything absurd like that. It was kind of more like, thank God, you know? Um, but but for, but for me, even that was too much, you know, it felt as though right then we shouldn't be focusing so much on the rest of my hand being okay, we should be focusing on some justice, you know, why did this kid do this, what kind of, shouldn't he be punished, shouldn't he also be, get talked to, shouldn't he be asked why he did it, you know, that those seem more appropriate, and then my emotions should be left to me, you know, and if I by myself come to the the idea that oh god i want to thank thank you lord for fixing my hand or for making it okay then i'll come to that on my own just trust people you know to have their own proper reactions to things even at a young age because you know what at the, when i was seven and the nail did start to grow back like a year later i was grateful and i did privately thank god and i did say you know wow i have my hand is okay you know and it will always be okay i'm, I'm okay and that felt good but I didn't go telling it to people and I don't feel like I should have to. I think the way that the society should deal with the situation is to then turn their entire attention on the person who did that and why. Yeah, it does seem like, it does seem like a very good anecdote that, um, well, that, like you said, the priority should be justice rather than gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I, I think I think what one thing I guess I always say with this book is that, you know, we I, I talk about moments where anger is appropriate, etc. But one thing about the book that I think maybe because of the title, maybe because of, you know, the way we speak about, you know, these kinds of issues today, uh, I think people get surprised how much love went into the book and how much love I have for Americans in the West and, and how I consider myself one of them. And I think one of the things I always feel the need to clarify is that this book is written for the people who want to help and people who are already helping and are so loved by, you know, the displaced communities. And, and it's, it's for people who just want to know more and don't want to inadvertently do harm. This is not like a polemic or get a bunch of rhetoric it's actually stories of moments of great love and and and, and connectedness between the native born and, and the displaced and how that has come to be and why that's so important to continue and so I think that's the, the thing about the book that's more under the surface and perhaps you know you one would have to read it in order to see is that it it's actually very um it comes from a very tender place you know and and the stories include just so many wonderful people from the West who are getting it right because they come from a place of curiosity and love and kindness and welcome. And really, that's all it is. In the description of this episode, you'll find links to Dina Nayeri's fantastic book, The Ungrateful Refugee, which I can highly recommend that you all read. You'll also find links to the charities that she supports and that are mentioned in this episode. These charities are Refugee Support, 
Freedom from Torture, Second Tree, Host Nation and Raid, Rights and Accountability in Development. So please do and go and have a look at those if you like. Like I said, all the links are provided in the episode description. Thank you so much for listening.